Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston of Freight Waves. What will we drill deep into today? There's no doubt we need to drill deep into the issue of diesel, which comes from oil, which comes from drilling into the ground. That's how we got our name here on this podcast. We're also going to speak to James Frith of Bloomberg NEF. There have been some big developments in the world of battery technology for vehicles in just the past few months. James is an expert in that field. We're going to be speaking to him about what those developments were in just a few minutes. Well, we did it. We broke the record for the most consecutive weeks of increases in the weekly Department of Energy, Energy Information Administration, retail diesel price, known shorthand as the DOE price. That data series goes back to 1994. It is the basis for most fuel surcharges. And when it rose in the number posted this past Monday, that made it 16 consecutive weeks that the benchmark went up. We're a little more than 60 cents above where we were in early November when the run of increases began, and it is not slowing down. The more than nine cents increase posted this past week was the biggest in the series and the biggest at any time since a more than 15 cents increase when Hurricane Harvey hit the Gulf Coast refining sector. All of this is happening after the current Gulf Coast refining sector, really the Texas Gulf Coast, the Texas refining sector, has taken a huge hit in its capability to produce fuel as a result of the recent deep freeze down there. The latest numbers from the EIA show total refinery throughput, that's the amount of crude being put through refineries, dropped almost 18% last week. It also showed that diesel demand didn't drop anywhere near as much as that amount of refinery decline. There was some drop in diesel demand, which is understandable, since the weather certainly slowed a lot of truck volumes. We saw that in some of the freight waves data in sonar. This sets up the prospect that as diesel demand pops back up, the refiners are not going to be there to supply it. It isn't certain just how long it's going to take for the Texas refining sector to come back to full operations. Many refineries did resume operations in the past week, but what can't be fully clear yet is the extent of damages that many of them might have suffered as a result of the cold snap. The degree of winterization of Texas refineries varies, and there is a history of refineries getting hit by cold weather and then sometimes taking weeks or even months to operate efficiently again. One of the best ways to track how the refining sector in Houston is doing, if you're a Sonar subscriber, you take a look at the wholesale diesel rack price for Houston. It's in the ULSDR.HOU data stream. Look at it and wonder, is that, not wonder, you can calculate, is it going up significantly faster than the price of diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange? If it is, that's an indication that the refining sector may be struggling and markets are tightening. So if we do look at it, what do we see? As I record this on February 25th, it shows that through February 24th, from the start of the deep freeze on February 15th, the wholesale price in Houston rose about 16 cents a gallon. The price of diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange is up about 13 cents. So Houston is tighter, but really, all things considered, not remarkably so, Remember, that wholesale price is for product to be sold today. That CME price for diesel is for product to be delivered next month. So it's, and it's also to be delivered in New York. So it's different. It's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. But if the Houston diesel market was getting seriously squeezed, I really think you'd see it there first. Still, a 17 to 18% decline in refinery throughput is nothing to scoff at. It is serious. The inventory numbers published weekly by the EIA need to be watched to see if stocks are drawing faster than they should be. The signals from the market suggest that they are. We don't have time for a full lesson on how commodity markets are structured. 
But looking at the relationship of prices out the calendar tells a story about inventories. Looking at the relationship this month, the next month, the month, month after that to 12 months out, that story that they told this past week indicates that they are tightening. There's another factor. Gasoline prices are climbing, climbing faster than diesel. And on that CME exchange, they're now about the same level as diesel. That's a switch from the way it's been for several months. And what that means is that refineries get incentivized to make more gasoline relative to diesel than they would have a few weeks or months ago. That's another concern for why inventories may tighten. The trucking industry is set up to attempt to pass diesel prices through to the consumers. Revenues for publicly traded trucking companies are broken out in earnings reports with fuel and without fuel. Even after all this increase, the fact is diesel prices, according to the DOE, are still a little less than they were a year ago. So there is no real crisis here, but for independent owner-operators running a load that they contracted for without a fuel surcharge, increases of a few cents a week can start to create havoc with their well-laid plans. The fact is that prices on the commodity exchange and in wholesale markets have continued to rise this week, setting up the prospect of a 17th consecutive increase in diesel next week. It may be testament to the industry structure that this is not being viewed as a problem yet and that the processes are in place to move this cost onto the backs of the shippers. They're the ones right now who appear to be paying these higher diesel costs. We are going to turn our attention now on drilling deep to some notable developments that have occurred in the past few months in one of the most important areas of the future of mobility, and that's in batteries. The debate over diesel versus batteries versus fuel cells is a very complicated one, but has major implications for the trucking sector. Obviously, for battery technology to be seriously in the game, there needs to be those technological developments to make it happen. Our guest today on Drilling Deep is James Frith. He is the head of energy storage at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and battery storage is one of the key areas that he's focused on. And James is joining us from London today. James, welcome to Drilling Deep. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Great to be here and, and always happy to talk about batteries. So I, I, don't, I don't know if I should give you this baseball analogy. I think you'll, you may get it anyway. You know, in, in, in the U.S., when people want to talk about where a process is from now to from where it is now to completion, they'll talk about what inning is it like a baseball inning? You know, if, is it early in the process? Well, it's in the first inning. If it's near the end, it's in the eighth inning. So in battery developments, we've had some significant changes or significant develops in the past few months. Would you mind giving a baseball analogy and telling us what inning it is? I, yeah, I can certainly try it. You might have to help me with the, the inning it's, uh, itself. Okay. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd say we're, we're, we're definitely kind of well past the first innings, right? We have these technologies that are, are well-developed. They're being deployed in numbers, but we're, we're certainly not home yet. You know, there's a couple of um, bar or a couple of kind of um, barriers that we need to overcome before we see kind of mass adoption of electric vehicles, of, of batteries and electric vehicles. Um, and it's certainly not kind of clean sailing. Sorry to throw another analogy in there. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you decide what innings we're in, but I'd say we're probably halfway through or something like that. All right. Well, then that's a lot past the first inning, that's for sure. So I think what first brought me uh, to your, what, what brought you to my attention was I was doing some reading about an announcement right before Christmas involving a partnership that I think included Volkswagen um, involving a breakthrough in solid state batteries. And there was a lot of excitement in battery world about that. First of all, can you tell us what a solid state battery is, what a battery is, and why is it so desirable? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so to understand a solid state battery, I guess we have to start with the kind of lithium ion batteries that are used today. 
Um, so there are three major components in a battery. You have your anode, your cathode, and between those two electrodes, you have the electrolyte. So today what batteries use is a, um, a liquid-based electrolyte. So it's an organic um, liquid uh, and it works quite well. You know, it's what's been used for 30 years or so. But the next kind of step change in that technology is actually substituting out that liquid for a solid material that can sit between that uh, anode and that cathode, between those two electrodes. And if you can achieve that properly, properly um, it promises to kind of open up a whole um, range of improvements in battery performance. The two that most, or, or the, yeah, the two that kind of I get get most attention, I guess, is one you increase the energy density, or you can increase the energy density of these cells because you're using kind of less mass of material separating the the anode and, and the cathode, um, which means that for a battery pack going into a truck, for example, you can travel further for a given uh, a given size or weight. Um, so that's one advantage. The other one is that the safety performance of a solid state battery or a battery using a solid electrolyte promises to be better than that of a, a liquid electrolyte. Now, I'm sure most people um, kind of realize that, that lithium ion batteries are pretty safe. You know, we wouldn't be using them in our EVs otherwise. Um, but there are, you know, there are occasions when you have fires and that liquid electrolyte in there, if you do get to that point, can help fuel the fire. So if you substitute that out, and put a solid electrolyte in, actually some of those kind of um, minor safety concerns are addressed. And if there is a problem with the battery, if there's a crash, you reduce the risk of anything bad happening. Now, what was the announcement before Christmas about the from the partnership that included VW? What exactly was the breakthrough that they, uh, that they accomplished and announced? Yeah, so that was um, a company, QuantumScape, which has been working on these uh, this solid solid state technology for over 10 years now. Um, they uh, partnered with VW uh, three or four years ago, um, but they've been very, very silent about what they've been up to. You know, they're, they're, they're one of the most secretive battery startups, I would have said. Um, just before Christmas, they went public um, via a, one of these SPACs. Um, so they, they kind of came out from behind that secrecy and they started releasing more information about how their batteries are performing. And, and that's really, I guess, the the key piece in the puzzle for these solid state batteries because they've been researched in in the literature and academia for years but there have been very few working examples so um we now have kind of quantumscape amongst others who have shown that they can actually build these lithium-ion batteries um and get them to perform as expected so they can provide the number of cycles or, or they can you know that they demonstrate that they're on the way to providing the number of cycles that you need for vehicle applications. Um, the other advantage that QuantumScape has kind of come up with specifically is with a solid state battery, you have the ability to use, to change the anode material. So traditionally you use something called graphite, which is reliable, but it's quite heavy. You need a lot of it for, for each battery. Um, with solid state batteries, you can switch to using lithium metal, right? So that's almost the holy grail, if you like, because then you're reducing the weight of this battery further. QuantumScape showed that they can um, manufacture their batteries without putting lithium metal on the anode side, um, which can make the manufacturing process easier. Instead, they they take lithium metal that's contained within the the cathode when they build these batteries and they plate it onto the anode side within the cell. So that really is a kind of step change in the technology. So they've not they've introduced not just kind of one advantage with their technology, but two at the same time. 
So was it your view that this really was a pretty big breakthrough? Yeah, it certainly is. You know, I, I think the reason it's a big breakthrough is because we've had um, companies that have tried to do this in the past and they've been able to demonstrate it over, you know, a few tens of cycles to up to, you know, the low hundred. Um, but what QuantumScape has shown is that they can do this for um, hundreds of cycles. They can actually kind of have this battery working the way that it's meant to and, you know, providing the performance that that you need for a battery that's going to go into an automotive application. Now, the other big thing that's happened in the world of batteries uh, the past few weeks, really, have been announcements by car makers about their targeted date in which they're no longer going to produce vehicles that operate on internal combustion engines. Now, I think for our audience here at uh, Drilling Deep and Freight Waves, uh, you're talking about uh, trucks, so that may be a little longer. But GM, of course, had the most significant announcement. I think they said their date was 2035. No more ICE vehicles after that. Is that doable? So, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I mean, it certainly is doable. You know, we have the technology to um, electrify electrify passenger vehicles. Um, it's there in the next kind of three or four years. Battery pack prices will be at the level where automakers will be able to produce electric vehicles at the same cost as an internal combustion engine vehicle and sell it for the same margin if they want to. So in terms of the kind of technical barriers and the financial barriers, you know, they are being removed. I think the real question here, um, you know, starts to be around um, consumer adoption. You know, how easy is it to get consumers to switch? And one of the potential barriers um, there is around the kind of charging infrastructure. Is there enough infrastructure for people to charge their vehicles, particularly if they don't have off-street parking at their home? Um, So while it, it certainly is kind of technically feasible for for these um, kind of uh, ICE bans to kind of or phase outs to come into place. Um, there are still some, um, yes, yeah, some, some logistical challenges to be overcome, I suppose. And then that's not to forget that, um, you know, if everyone switches to, to lithium batteries overnight, we're going to need a lot of battery manufacturing capacity. Yeah. Where do you stand, though, on the, you know, the electrification of vehicles has really two paths it can take. It can take a battery. Um, a rechargeable lithium-ion battery or some other material, or it can go hydrogen and then hydrogen uses the fuel cell to convert the uh, energy and hydrogen to electricity to power the vehicle. Where do you think that race is is going? Or, you know, could there be more than one winner here? Yeah, so again, uh, you know, another great question. Um, and, and I'd say it's a nuanced, you know, there's quite a nuanced answer there. If we look at the, if we look at decarbonization in general beyond just transportation. There are some sectors that are very hard to um, wean off carbon emissions, if you like, you know, steel production um, being one of them and um, industrial processes that require heating. In most of those instances, you're using um, material that that can't easily be substituted um, for for kind of carbon neutral uh, materials instead. so you have, a, I think, a question there, you know, do you gear up hydrogen production to serve electric vehicles or do you look at where you can strategically place that, um, you know, that, 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 that hydrogen and look for sectors that are otherwise very hard to abate? Uh, and so while you could kind of technically um, use hydrogen fuel cells in passenger electric vehicles, um, it seems that it makes more sense to use those hydrogen fuel cells 
that hydrogen in, in other applications. The other consideration for you know passenger EVs in particular is that um, the cost or, or deploying hydrogen refueling infrastructure is not straightforward. You know, it's a challenge enough as it is with um, electric vehicle charges with hydrogen fueling stations. You know, there's a huge cost involved. So there could be some applications where it makes more sense, particularly when you're looking at heavy duty trucking, where you know you have very defined routes where you can build uh, refueling sta- stations at either end uh, and the investment cost is lower. So I think it's it's not a straightforward answer, but I think probably if we look at it, um, hydrogen is better used for certain applications where batteries aren't so suitable, like heavy du- long distance heavy duty trucking and industrial processes that um, are hard to kind of wean off um, fossil fuels or, or carbon and producing um, energy sources. I want to go back to a point you were making earlier about cost. And I was looking in your, in preparation for this, I was looking at your Twitter feed, which uh, anybody interested in the world of batteries, I would suggest you follow. Um, and you were talking about uh, the, uh, the, the benchmark of dollars per kilowatt hour and that we were reaching some sort of, I won't say parity levels. I'm not sure the term you used, but levels where it was very significant to get there. Can you talk about the numbers that are, again, this is kind of back to that first inning, ninth inning question. You know, what are the numbers on dollars per kilowatt hour? How does that define and where are we? Yeah, certainly. So at the very high level, um, you know, we carry out at Bloomberg NEF, we carry out the survey each year of battery prices. We've been doing that since 2012 with data going back to 2010. And over that time period, battery pack prices have dropped from over $1,000 per kilowatt hour in 2010 um, to $137 per kilowatt hour on average in 2020. Let's interrupt here. So that, that means it's basically $137 worth of electricity to provide a kilowatt hour of electricity coming out of the battery. Is that how you would define it? Yeah, so, so, so um, yeah, so exactly. So for every um, kind of unit of the battery that can store one kilowatt hour of energy, that's costing you $137. I see. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and, you know, a typical battery pack at the moment could be anywhere from kind of 50 kilowatt hours up to, you know, 100 kilowatt hours in some of the bigger um, EVs or SUVs. Okay. So, you know, you're very optimistic right now. And um, the you, you kind of made reference earlier to battery making technology. What about lithium technology? Uh, how much of the earth are we going to rip apart looking for lithium? And the other issue here is cobalt is a terrific battery metal. Uh, I've got a kind of a long history with cobalt. Early in my career, I worked for American Metal Market. And one of the markets I covered was cobalt. And cobalt wasn't even a battery metal then. There wasn't such a thing. And cobalt was a problem then. And here it is like 40 years later. And cobalt is still a problem because of where it comes from. It comes from what was then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a great metal. It, it just has all these incredible qualities. And it just happens to come from a place with not a lot of health and environmental or labor standards. So what's the world's ability to produce enough lithium for all this? Yeah, so so on the lithium side of stuff, um, as it stands today, there is a large amount of lithium um, production. It, it does meet the the demands that we have kind of last that we had last year and and, and this year. But there does need to be more investment in order to turn those um, kind of reserves into or, or resources into kind of actively mined um, capacity. Um, and so there has been, you know, from the in the lithium market over the last 18 months or so, um, because of low lithium prices, 
um, you know, there's been some hesitation in investing in new mining capacity, although the, the you know, the, the sites are there and, and ready, if you like. Um, what we've seen over the last couple of months is that lithium prices have started to, to lift um, and that miners are beginning to commit to investing or, or building out that mining capacity to, to produce lithium to meet demand. So that side of things, it's... Um, I would say it's not such a concern, right? We still need to see more investment coming into the area to make sure that those mines are built. But there is the the lithium supply available if, if there is the investment. The cobalt question, you're, you're quite right. That is that is very tricky. It's tricky for the industry because people want to decarbonize. They want to electrify. But at the moment, um, there is a reasonable amount of cobalt used in these chemistries that are going into electric vehicles. So there's a number of different um, approaches, I suppose, that can be taken. The um, I guess the first line of defense, if you like, is the um, kind of signing up to ethical cobalt sourcing, you know, whether that is tracking the supply chain through different methods. That's the first approach that automakers and battery cell manufa- manufacturers can take. The next consideration is that they can reduce their reliance on cobalt. So that has been that has been happening over the last 10 years, really. The amount of cobalt in each battery produced as a percentage has been reduced. So we are kind of weaning ourselves off cobalt. Um, there are also some chemistries that don't use cobalt at all. Um, you may have, you and the listeners may have heard of lithium iron phosphate or LFP. So that contains no cobalt. It has, that's a clear advantage. It has some disadvantages in that the energy density is lower than nickel and cobalt based chemistries, which means you know, driving less miles for a, or kilometers for a given um, pack size or weight. Um, but there is that ability to use that chemistry if we really want to wean off cobalt. Uh, and then finally, um, just looking to the future, again, beyond lithium ion phosphate, beyond NMC, there are a number of new chemistries that are being um, researched and commercialized that use no cobalt in them at all and have high energy density. So still give you that long driving range. Um, Panasonic's uh, or Tesla's collaborator Panasonic expects that it will introduce a high energy density chemistry in the next two to three years with no cobalt in it. So it's an issue, but um, I would say that the the industry is trying to address that as best it can. Yeah, I had to say when you refer to the ethical cobalt supply chain commitment, that sounded like the oxymoron of all time. But anyway, (laughs) Um, where is most of the research for batteries going on now? Is it uh, VC money coming in? Uh, is it uh, sort of bigger, more established players? We mentioned Volkswagen earlier. Um, Tesla, I think by now is, you know, might, you might consider a, they're, they're sort of a strange situation. Are they are they a startup? Are they bigger established? I'm not really sure. But uh, is there enough research going into batteries? And where where's the money coming from? Any particular source? Yeah, so, so I'd say we're actually in a, a kind of golden era of battery research today. I think there's probably more research going on than there has ever been. And it comes from from a variety of different areas. So, of course, the established players um, are are all doing their research. LG Energy Solutions, uh, which used to be LG Chem, uh, spends hundreds of millions each year on on battery research. So, you know, that's the big player. There's, There's a number of other kind of players of that magnitude that are similarly kind of investing millions or hundreds of millions into battery research each year. I think the Chinese manufacturer... Um, CATL or, or CATL, as some people refer to it as, um, has thousands of master's students working in its research facilities and hundreds of postdoctoral students. You know, so they're clearly investing in this area. Um, outside of the big players, 
academics are, are keenly interested in this with more money being poured into governments into this kind of fundamental research. And then, as you say, kind of from that academic research, we're seeing more and more startups coming out and more and more VC funding going into that. Uh, the question of Tesla is, is a great one. You know, I think um, they're probably still classed as a startup because they're in such a growth phase. But, um, you know, the size of the company um, pr probably means that they shouldn't be considered a startup uh, anymore. But they are, again, you know, really driving forward with their research. And I think when we have such kind of public um, acknowledgement of what they're doing, we see um, other companies kind of being galvanized by that and wanting to get involved. I have one final question. I'm going to use my little platform here to ask a question that has always kind of puzzled me about batteries and cars. I always thought that the Chevy Volt would be a success because it eliminated the range anxiety problem because you had a gasoline tank. And if your battery drained down, you just switch over to good old petrol. Um, and yet it was a total flop where other electric vehicles, of course, like Tesla and um, several others are doing quite well. Why did a, a car that had two options for fueling it flop when others are sort of all in on the battery side? A lot of them are doing well. Yeah. So again, it's 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 a great question. It, it's one that I you know I don't have a certain answer for, but I can certainly give my you know a possible opinion. Um, I think one of the things that that impacts that is that um, although, as you say, you have two options for fueling, it's a little bit of of it doesn't have its own identity, if you like. You know, it's not a full battery electric vehicle. And I think a lot of early adopters who are interested in decarbonization and uh, and electric vehicles, you know, I think they probably opted to go for the full battery alternative. Um, you know, similarly on the um, kind of petrol side of stuff, if you like, the, the ICE side of things, um, for a lot of people, uh, I guess the kind of additional cost of having that battery in the vehicle, perhaps kind of put them off when you could probably get a similar sized vehicle that's just petrol, that's slightly cheaper. And so I think there's that kind of mismatch, I suppose, between what the what the consumer wants um, and, and what perhaps um, an automaker thinks is, is good. That being said, you know, I have a, a, a plug-in hybrid myself. Um, I really enjoy it, but that's because I, I, I'm a kind of self-confessed battery nerd. So I'm always watching what my electric range is, making sure that I've charged it uh, and I'm ready to go. Um, and that's, I guess, another problem that has been highlighted with plug-in hybrid vehicles is that if um, their providers are, say, company cars, where the, the owner isn't necessarily that interested in the battery, but perhaps the company gets a, a tax rebate or something for, for having an electric vehicle, generally those owners don't tend to charge that much and don't tend to use the electric range that much. Um, so in some respects, you're just kind of dragging around a deadweight battery. Um, yeah, it's a difficult yeah. one, but... I guess you, you can't, it can't, it's more like a binary approach to the market. You're one or the other and you can't straddle the two worlds. Yeah, and I, th I think that's what we see in the long run. You know, once we have higher battery energy densities and driving ranges that are, kind of similar to what we have today, there's not really a place for the kind of plug-in hybrid, um, except in, in, I would say, some more niche applications. Interesting. Well, listen, James, I want to thank James Frith. He's our, been our guest today here on Drilling Deep. He's the head, of energy, head, the head of energy storage at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, their leading battery expert at the BNEF. So, James, thanks for coming on Drilling Deep. Perfect. Thanks for having me, John.
And you've been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the major platforms for podcasts. I've been your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. <laughs>